I have never met a doctor uh, when I bring up the Federation of State Medical Boards who knows what I'm talking about. Who is this Federation? What, what, how they've been around for a hundred some years and I don't know anything about them as a, as a physician. It was shocking. It was, um, to me, what I witnessed was uh, beyond anything I thought that could ever be. I think we're talking about the medical councils of the world have been captured by the Federation. We should not be allowing a private corporation to be influencing medical councils like this. If we stand by and we let the Medical Council of New Zealand incorporate this into their uh, policies and procedures, that that will be the final gag on anything that a doctor says counter to the mainstream narrative. Doctors were saying, we want to be free to practice what we want without being attacked by our medical boards. One of the reasons that I'm here and I'm stepping out now is because we're very, we're getting to a point where doctors are not allowed to talk unless they talk about the mainstream narrative. And this is called um, misinformation and disinformation. And this is really concerning me because now it's coming apparently to New Zealand and we have to stop it. And Vioxx, that story is unbelievable. Merck that makes Vioxx, who actually makes most of your childhood vaccines, was busted in court, had to pay out over $3 billion in damages for having murdered over 50,000 American citizens. And what did we discover in that court case? That they knew that their drug caused heart attacks. And when we looked at the emails that were being transferred between the people working at Merck, we found out that they had a memo that says any doctor that questions the safety of Vioxx, we will hunt them down and destroy them where they live. Today I'm talking to Dr. Bruce Dooley, who is an American man who's been living in New Zealand and practicing as a doctor here, serving his community. Doctors around the world, though, are being attacked for speaking up at the moment. And the information that we are investigating today has never gone out in such a public forum before. It's not even known by most doctors around the world themselves. Welcome, Dr. Bruce Dooley. This Thanks, is an important piece of information for patients, for doctors, for everybody interested in health now in this world situation. What is the organization that we're going to discuss? It's called the Federation of State Medical Boards. And it um, is a private organization that exists in a uh, suburb outside of Dallas, actually, Euless, Texas. And it is uh, it was founded and created in 1913. So it's over 100 years old. 
It's a private organisation, isn't it? It's private. We're going to come back to that. I need to first of all now establish your qualifications. As a doctor, where did you train? I trained at uh, Jefferson, which is the second oldest medical school in Philadelphia in the United States. And prior to that, I, I received my master's uh, in immunology and virus research, actually, at the Villanova University. And I'm, um, I'm uh, active and unrestricted license, still registered in Florida, Hawaii, and in New Zealand. We need, therefore, a disclaimer for this whole interview. You are not here as a doctor, ironically, are you? Mm -hmm. what, are you what are you here as? How would you call yourself today? What hat are you wearing? I would say that, really, I, I'm here as a concerned citizen who has information um, that I doubt very many other people have in the world, and I feel that it's really time to reveal it. I'm not going to be naive here. I've worked in mainstream media, and I'm aware of influence from that period of working in mainstream. Influence that really put me off actually being in mainstream media. Mm. I think it has become much more pronounced and the subject matter today could influence the profit margin of some very big organizations in the world. So I want to establish something before we begin. Is your health good? Very good. Is your mental health good? I think so, yes. So you would have no sense of wanting to commit suicide at any point? No, no. And I am the same. I have no desire to commit suicide. I have a desire to be here in the world and make it a better place. Would you say that's your modus operandi? Yes, I would. Thank I'm you. I'm the most optimistic guy you can meet. Brilliant. Yeah. And that is important because mm. this medical model that we have in the world, we have all seen in the years of the rollout of the COVID response, has created not millions, but billions, possibly even trillions for certain organizations. So we have to be aware as, as a journalist, Dr. Bruce, we always had an edict. If you want to follow stories, first follow the money. Mm -hmm. So this involves a lot of money, this story. All right, let's begin back in 1880. I'm, there's a quirky story you told me before we come to air about um, what America was like as far as state controls. And it comes from quite an unusual source. Can you tell me that story? Uh, yes, my, my lovely wife um, loves uh, old books. And we, uh, she pulled out a, a book the other day that she had bought at some book fair. And uh, it was um, uh, some, you know, just a list of governmental departments in the federal government back in, in 1880. And she said, uh, Bruce, she said, this is really interesting. She says, look at this in the Department of Treasury, Department of this. But I looked at and there was no Department of Health. And uh, I thought, well, that's interesting. And so what I take from that is that the doctors at the time um, were, they were in charge of the health. And it was just basically said, you know, this, this is your ball, you take care of it. It's not a federal uh, thing, state by state, you know, as we, we have in the United States. I met at a, a conference of doctors earlier this year, I met uh, an older doctor who was from England originally. Mm -hmm. His father had been a doctor. And he told me that his father's advice to him as a young doctor was, you must protect your patients from the state. Mm. It's a very unusual thing for a doctor to say now. Tell me about your background as a doctor. What was in your familial background? Well, my father was a, was a doctor and I grew up around doctors. You know, he they would be over for dinner and all that. and, and um, you know, I, I distinctly remember that the doctors of that time were 
they were the captains of their own ship. They, they were not being uh, on salary to anybody. They were independent. Uh, and um, there wasn't even any um, actually private medical insurance, as you say, until I remember a certain time when that actually happened, when private medical insurance came in. And I thought, that's pretty interesting. Can you tell me that story, your, your memory of it? Right. It was a surgeon. Actually, his name was Chuck Miller. He's gone now. But he, he was telling, he said to my dad, you know, Mike, he said, um, you know, I took a boil off a guy the other day, uh, off his back, and he said, uh, you know, uh, Charlie, another uh, surgeon, said, hey, next time you do that, if the patient has private insurance, just bill the insurance directly instead of the $25 that you uh, charged your, the patient for the boil. And um, so, Char uh, and Chuck said, uh, he said, so I did it the next one that came in. I, I billed this guy's, what they call private insurance, I billed him $200, and they paid it. And it turned out that at the time when private insurance was coming in to the scene, getting in between, if you will, between the patient and the doctor, um, that they were paying everything, anything that the doctor billed, captain of the ship. And of course, as years went on, it got less and less and less. And, it's know. very relevant, that story, to what we'll talk about today, because, because in that way, it can become one of the levers for controlling how a doctor treats the patient for telling a doctor what to do. There are other levers, as we're going to find out. But back to these halcyon days of simple medical practice, there was this sac sacrosanct relationship mm. of patient and doctor. Yeah. Tell us more about that. Well, I mean, I would like to think that I still have that kind of relationship with my patients. Mm -hmm. And because I operate as a private consultant and I, I don't have any master over me. And, um, and so it, what it was, was the relationship was, was getting to know the patient in, in terms of his or her family, the stresses in the family. Um, and, and, and so there was an awful, like, unspoken acknowledgement that um, the, whatever psychological issues may, may be impacting the health. And it was really interesting because it seemed like at the time that um, the patients would go to their trusted doctor and the doctor would um, would put a stethoscope and listen and, you know, and then say, you know, Harry, you're going to be fine. And Harry would book, ah, doc said I'm going to be fine. And so now, um, because of malpractice and all of the other things, you have to do all these testings and you never and the doctors aren't free to give the message that everything's fine. Don't worry. It's always like, well, those tests were okay, but we have to do some more tests. So that there's that, do you know what I'm saying? That, that, that placebo effect, which is very powerful, by the way. Placebo is very powerful. Nobody's going to deny that. That we can actually um, encourage patients to um, get back to health just through that kind of process. And I, I think that, that the insurance companies and, 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 the, and the malpractice and all that has really gotten in the way uh, of that relationship. There's, it's very much a, a personal thing that you're talking about in those old doctors, too. It's looking patients in the face, yeah. getting to know the Spending time. Spending time. Spending time. So the reason for this is that period, doctors had great autonomy. They could choose. They could choose among a, a variety of things they might wish to say mm -hmm. to that particular patient. Mm -hmm. Has that autonomy been eaten into? It's been crushed. And that's why I'm here. So in this confusion, let's, let's, let's simplify it by going back to medicine at the turn of last century. 
Could we look at what that model was like and then contrast it with what's been happening now? What was it like? Well, at the turn of last century, actually, um, pharmaceuticals actually hadn't even really, they were just trying to get a, a foothold. And uh, um, so most of, the, most of the treatment processes were what we would call today natural medicine. There was herbal and uh, uh, body work being done on people, uh, things like colonic therapies and, and, and uh, uh, diet, nutrition, my gosh, the Kellogg. Uh, foundation was all about diet and exercise um, and uh, and strengthening the terrain, uh, cleaning up the terrain so that you are strong. And, and the you terrain don't being your constitution, yeah. your body, the yeah. environment within the body. It makes such sense. Well, the point, the point is, Liz, is that if you're in homeostatic balance, what we call homeostasis, okay, um, the body, uh, it, it, the body will never get sick. Think about that for a second. If we, if we were taught, so I was taught in, in the first day of pathology in medical school, we were taught about this homeostasis, this balance, right? And I thought, wow, this is exciting. You know, they're gonna, they're gonna teach me how to keep the body into balance. And then almost the next day, they start talking about pharmaceuticals for the rest of the year, what drug to, to, to apply to it. And I thought, what happened to that homeostatic balancing? Well, I ended up, retraining myself basically over the years to go to people who would teach me about detoxification and, and about heavy metal toxicities and about these things that do tend to tip the body out of homeostasis and then people get sick. Are you saying the body has its own healing mechanisms? Its own All the time. We're just one big healing machine. And it's meant to be that way. And, uh, you know, at any point in time, uh, all of us have a cancer cells in our body because, you know, when you're producing this many cells, uh, there's going to be funny looking cells. But, you know, our immune system, which is uh, I studied for two years and believe me, you get religion when you start studying the immune system at that level. Uh, our immune system's there to, like centuries to take out the bad guys, to take out, make sure they don't grow. But if the immune system is punch drunk or being uh, diverted by attention somewhere else or, um, you know, just eating, you know, bad food and falling asleep all the time, tired, well, then that cancer cell will get, will get loose and, and set up shop. And then we have cancer, uh, you know, we have a cancer tumor that's now a problem. So going back to the turn of the century, we had this awareness. But let's, let's talk about then what happened in 1913. And we're coming into this organization of which I had never heard. Nobody I have asked has ever heard of it. And I understand from research I've done, most doctors have no idea that it exists. Tell I had no idea. It. You had no idea? Oh, I had no idea. In fact, uh, I can tell you right now that um, it's, I have never met a doctor uh, when I bring up the Federation of State Medical Boards who knows what I'm talking about. And little do they know how much their medical registration actually re is being um, actioned uh, through that organization, but we'll talk about how. And that. it is a private organization. This is nothing transparent. This is nothing voted on. This is nothing that is is brought out in the media anywhere that I can see in the world. Yeah, and they, and and it influences New Zealand's medical council, and it influences medical boards and councils around the world, mm. not just in America. Yeah, I think that you. Um, the international arm of the Federation was uh, established in the mid-1990s. 
So it's relatively new, it's 30 years or so. And um, so New Zealand has joined that international arm uh, and it's still, it's located at the same address in uh, 400 Fuller Street, Fuller Drive in Euless, Texas. And by the way, that's a very interesting thing and hopefully you'll be able to show a picture of it. it, it these, this is a not insignificant complex. It's two massive two-story buildings with 300, 300 plus employees uh, that is, you know, is really quite a large organization. Oddly, it's tucked away in a suburban street in mm -hmm. Texas, mm -hmm. but it does have a sister branch in Washington, yes, doesn't it? it? Yeah. It's, it's, very, it's very unusual that we would know nothing about this, but take us back to the formation so we can begin there. Can you research easily the formation of this organization? Are there, is there paperwork? Are there discussions? Is there governmental interplay with, with the people founding this? What was your research yielding? It is, um, it is absolutely astonishing to me that an organization this old and, and this with powerful this, and this much influence mm. and power, if you would say, yeah, uh, seems to have risen out of nowhere. Um, I can't find it. It's almost like there's a blackout uh, on where this came from in 1913, which is an interesting year in itself. Why do you say it's an interesting well, year? Well, that was the year that the uh, Federal Reserve was formed, and that's an a story about how that came to be. And also it was the same year uh, that the Internal Revenue Service, uh, the first taxation of Americans, uh, income tax, was uh, done. So there's, it was a very powerful, uh, busy year, I think. Mm. And this that, that's an interesting one just to leave hanging there because this, this is big control mechanisms for money. Mm. And this organization was at its heart, it seems to me, an absolute control mechanism for doctors. Well, it's, I mean, I believe that, um, and, it's, uh, and it seems to stack up with what happened historically back then, which was, as you, we were talking about, um, the natural medical therapies were being taught. Um, w actually, I understand there's like 2,000 medical schools back then um, that were teaching all kinds of natural therapies, and uh, the, the, uh, a uh, friend of Rockefeller, uh, uh, Dale Carnegie, uh, commissioned a fellow named Flexner to uh, basically investigate these medical schools. And he came out with what we call the Flexner Report, which is quite famous among us that we know, which basically wiped out all but about 150 medical schools. From 2000 to 150? Uh -huh. Yeah, they, 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 they basically um, eliminated them uh, their license to teach, etc., and they established um, a, a very small number of allopathic medical schools. Um, yeah, and so oh. there was there was a homeopathic medical school at the time, which actually was in my town, uh, Samuel Hahnemann Hahnemann, Hahnemann Hahnemann Medical. Samuel Hahnemann was the founder of homeopathy, and homeopathy at the time was really powerful. Uh, it was it was actually very very much a competitor to the pharmaceutical that was just being established at the time. As a mother, I became fascinated with Hahnemann. I read all about him and I studied a certain amount to help my children. Mm -hmm. I had phenomenal results with babies. Mm -hmm. So that's not psychosomatic. That's that I couldn't suggest to them. But Hahnemann was a doctor mm -hmm. who was disillusioned with people coming back and back to him still sick. And he wanted to find something that would help their immune system be stronger. 
So that's fascinating that there was actually this 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 system in America that was supporting both pharmaceutical in its early days and an alternative that was yielding good results. And the doctors came from the same medical school, except what some doctors decided to go with Hahnemann and some doctors decided to go with Rockefeller and, and the pharmaceutical. And so, um, of course, pharmaceutical homeopathy was non-patentable, uh, was non-toxic. Very uh, cheap to produce. Yeah, very cheap to produce. And mm -hmm. in fact, even today, um, it's ridiculously cheap to buy you know, homeopathic medications if mm -hmm. you can find them. And there are many people who testify to having had very good results with that, which mm -hmm. is interesting. Rockefeller is an interesting name because when we look at allopathic medicine, which is based around pharmaceuticals, Rockefeller, the Rockefeller name is woven mm. throughout that. Yeah. from its genesis right through. There's no debating that. No, there's no debating. That's well known. Rockefeller, prior to that, was really deeply um, invested in, uh, in oil. Standard oil, yeah. Yeah. So do we know if Rockefeller was part of the founding of this organization? Do we have any links to that? No, we don't. What's interesting from my research, though, is that when these medical schools were reduced down in number, there had to be a Rockefeller appointee on the board of every one of those medical schools. And to me, as a journalist, that, that points to some, some link that at least deserves deeper investigation. Would you agree with that, Dr. Well, I, I, I mean, yes, and I, and I have tried the deeper investigation after my uh, experiences with uh, the Federation. And um, all I can tell you is that uh, who, who in 1913 uh, would be interested in creating uh, a, an organization that had, um, that had influence initially with the medical boards who controlled the licenses of the doctors? And where did that money come from? Well, there was a lot of big money back then, you know, the Rockefellers and the and the Carnegies and the Mellons and the, you know, and so, and they all were together. They all, they all tangled together. Um, so nobody else that I know of would have had the funding to create such an organization. It's a really interesting question mark that, that Rockefeller influence, which has been profound on the development of our so-called modern medicine. Let's go to the result of that 1913 formation of this FSMB, as it's known. Mm. What, what were the early results? Well, the early results were basically that uh, the, the concept was that uh, you had this organization that was a private organization that was a membership organization, mm. kind of like the World Health Organization is a membership organization, countries are members. In this particular case, um, the medical boards or councils uh, in the states had been in existence for some of them 100 or more years. And they had the primary focus of making sure the doctors were ethical and that they were doing good medicine and that they weren't harming people. And the, the mandate of every medical board since way before the Federation is protect the public from harm. It's a four letter word that they jumped to harm. And yeah. some of the ways that played out might be a, a doctor who, who is being reported for being drunk or doing yeah, drugs. Exactly, or exactly. And, perhaps... and, that, and that's all reasonable. It's a check and balance. Yes. It was a check and balance. And these were doctors 
that were running it, checking on balance on themselves. Mm. Okay, as I said, you know, they, they basically were running the ship. So this new membership organization uh, developed in 1913, and what they did was, because the, the, these medical councils, medical boards, were government agencies, um, they said, Let's, we're going to have a membership thing, pay a fee, and we'll have annual membership meeting, and we'll begin to work together. And so essentially it started off as like, well, that sounds like a good idea. Uh, and it may have come about um, with the intention of, you know, be, being able to influence these medical boards. And uh, they certainly do now. So, so then we have this, this very um, opaque board developing more and more power over the years. What has happened in the trajectory of its influence and balance on the way medicine's been delivered? Let's start with America and then move to how it's spread around the world. Well, as I, uh, I guess the, probably the best way to lead into this is to tell you uh, that I was, on, I was on the board of a very uh, fast-growing, very influential, uh, integrative or a holistic, if you will, CAM uh, uh, organization called ACAM, American College for Advancement of Medicine. You, you actually, Dr. Bruce, are well known in America. You were a leader in integrative medicine in America before you came here to New Zealand yeah. in 2007. So, so what, we, um, what we did is we brought uh, we had 1,200 members. These are registered physicians of all ages. Uh, and we had a million dollars in the bank. So this was not, in, and, and we were growing at about 150 to 200 um, members a year. Uh, this is in 1995. And what was your purpose? What was your mission? What Our purpose was to, was to train or retrain, if you will, in, back into the more natural uh, uh, healing techniques, non-toxic, uh, detoxification, dealing with how the, the gut uh, imbalances in the gut influence uh, health in the immune system. All these things that really just, um, they, these associations were never made in medical school. In fact, in medical school, and still today I understand in medical schools, uh, I had one hour of nutrition in four years. And that was a really boring upside down pyramid that don't, we don't even use today. I mean, so, you know, Hippocrates said, let medicine be thy food and food be thy medicine. Mm -hmm. Well, I can tell you, and probably most people understand, doctors are just not trained in, 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 in nutrition and how it affects the body. And it gets back to that idea you mentioned before. You're looking at how you get the body into homeostasis, into exactly, balance. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but when I've spoken to you prior to this interview, you are not, you are not averse to, to uh, pharmaceutical medicine either. You've said to me it has its place. Absolutely. Tell, tell us about that. Well, I mean, modern medicine is a miracle. I mean, I'm three weeks post uh, knee replacement, and mm -hmm. I'm walking around, and I mean, there's just so many things that are, it's, that are just so powerful and so proud to be a doctor in that respect. And um, the idea that, you know, a person, uh, high blood pressure may be connected to diet and, and, and lifestyle, uh, you know, uh, lifestyle changes. The idea that you could basically... Um, move that person away from high blood pressure naturally or with some herbal things uh, appeals to me and appeals to a lot of people rather than just saying, look, you have to be on this drug the rest of your life. Just take this and, you know, and that's it. And, and so 
this, the thing is, we, we are being told that there's no science. Well, there's a lot of science. It's just not being told to the people. If you, if you go and you look at coenzyme Q10 and heart disease on uh, Scholar, Google Scholar, you know about Google Scholar? That's no, been, tell us about that. Google Scholar, if you really want to know something, uh, you want to get just the science, type in Scholar, and you'll go to a special Google thing where it only lists papers, peer-reviewed papers. That's it. And it's wonderful because then you, get, you, you filter out all of the baloney, if you will, and you get right straight down to the science. And so, for instance, vitamin D. There'll be probably 20,000 papers on vitamin D uh, and it's, a, it's power of vitamin D. You know, and uh, so the point is, is that this is not patentable. This is not a lot of money to be made. And most all of these studies, by the way, uh, are not funded at all by pharmaceutical companies, which is where most of the major funding comes. One of the reasons that I'm here and I'm stepping out now is because we're very, we're getting to a point where doctors are not allowed to talk unless they talk about the mainstream narrative. And this is called um, misinformation and disinformation. And this is really concerning me because now it's coming apparently to New Zealand and we have to stop it. So to do this, I asked you about the trajectory of influence of this 1913 group. It's, mm. been, it's been growing steadily, relentlessly, but behind closed doors, as it were, behind its veil. Uh, I'll go back to this uh, association in 1995 that I was on the board of, mm. and we were growing so fast. And um, unbeknownst to me, the Federation had the, the president of the, or chair of the, um, uh, Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, uh, at their annual meeting, where it's on record him saying, thank you very much for telling us about this association organization, ACAM. We'll take care of them, more or less. And the next year, they came in, and because of um, a couple uh, sentences in one of our brochures, they basically uh, closed us down. They stopped, they stopped uh, what was a very dynamic growth in this um, field, uh, and I didn't even know it at the time. I only found this out probably 15 years later, how they had orchestrated that. They, 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 were, that, they were that far out of the picture of all of us. Mm. So we will come back then to what is happening on misinformation and disinformation. Here I think we need to go into your own story about how you had to be answerable for your courage in looking at other options as a doctor and how you came to hear about the Federation yourself. Tell us that story. Oh, that, so um, in, the, in the mid 90s, all of my uh, colleagues in this type of field were being attacked by their medical boards and they were all being attacked kind of in the same way. It was, it was almost became a badge of courage that you had a run in with your medical board. <laughs> uh, I had, um, was doing this therapy, which the cardiologist and I, uh, a lot of people uh, who benefited from drugs, etc., did not like, and it's called EDTA chelation therapy, which was an intravenous therapy. And I had an, an advertisement uh, that had my picture, and it talked a little bit about what you know it did, and helping with circulation, etc. And there was one word in there called uh, that I put certified in chelation therapy, and it turned out that the um, the Florida Medical Council uh, president lived in town. He saw that. He knew that I couldn't use that word. 
They pulled me up to the medical council and said, you're not supposed to use that because you're insinuating that you're board certified in chelation, which they didn't recognize, and I was actually. And Could we deal with that? You, you, you did have a certain level of certification. Well, actually, you? yeah, I was actually president of the Florida Alternative Medical Association. We had 130 physicians, mm. and we had our, 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 our point was we wanted to make sure there was never any harm from this therapy, that we were all doing it. Anyway, long story short, he, I said, mea culpa, mea maxa culpa. You know, I didn't know that I couldn't use this word. I won't use it again. And that was that. And um, then a uh, local uh, cardiologist who was a, a big supporter of Jeb Bush, the governor, got appointed to the medical board. And he, um, he apparently didn't like me very much because I was taking patients away from him. They didn't. And he actually tried to get the board to make chelation therapy illegal. I need, I need to clarify that chelation therapy is about reducing the toxic load in the body. You were taking patients away in what, to, in what sense? Well, they, they, didn't people have, were healthier. They, didn't, they didn't need to have bypasses after chelation. There they, we are. They, they, they got off their blood pressure medicine because their arteries got younger and yep. more relaxed. And all of these things. And, and uh, you know, I thought I was doing a good job. I was doing what I'm supposed to do, right? And, 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 and since 1950s, when they, they've discovered this therapy, there's never been a death or a serious side effect. And we're talking about millions of people. So imagine, the, imagine that I can, and I actually gave, you know, kind of a guarantee. I said, if this doesn't help you, you get your money back. I, and, right. and, and the funny thing was the, the medical council called me a year later, said, you can't give a guarantee like the money back guarantee. So I had to stop doing that. Uh, well, I get called back up to the medical council two months later in Tallahassee. They brought up the same charge, uh, you know, this, this word, which they had already, I thought, double jeopardy. And this time they hit me with a disciplinary mark. And I didn't know what that disciplinary mark meant really at the time. But as I was leaving uh, the room, I heard one of the, the board members say to the other, one of the doctors say, are you going to be at the Federation meeting in Dallas next week? And I went, I heard that word before on the board, in the board of ACAM, that's this Federation uh, thing. So I ended up going to the annual meeting and uh, kind of, uh, I, I signed in and I, and I went there as a member. Yeah, and tell that's us where a, I found out. Tell us about it. What was it like? It was shocking. It was, um, to me, what I witnessed was uh, beyond anything I thought that could ever be, which was a private organization with seemingly, uh, nobody knows who funds them, by the way, calling together uh, these members of the medical associations, me medical boards, councils, into this wine and dine, uh, I, you know, I had been to a lot of conventions and meetings and I had never seen anything quite with the lavishness that, that, that was portrayed here. At this meeting that I went to, uh, all I could hear was talk about how, to, how can you, board member, uh, get your quack, and they, they were say, outright saying quack, it was on tape, uh, how do you get your doctor who's a quack or now, as we'll say later, fringe doctor? This is what they're calling doctors here now, fringe doctors. It's kind of, kind of the same thing. Uh, it's just in a different, there's a different tune now. How they were telling on paper uh, people, a doc, uh, the medical boards, how to get the doctor. And when you say how to get them, how to report them? How to get their license and suspend their license and take them out, basically. So... Here's how they do it, and here's how they did it this April, this year. One member of each medical council is, is designated the delegate. 
And after a fine, big, nice end of the conference lunch where everybody's kind of puffy and they give all these uh, awards out uh, to people, uh, and in usually in the context of what they're going to be voting on, in this particular one, it was all about you know, keeping medicine safe in your, in your state, doctor, from these questionable doctors who are, you know, doing this. And if your state legislature has any of these, there's a tendency now for this freedom of medical, medical freedom movement that's going on because we were pushing it. Uh, we'll patients go, are pushing for it. Patients too. are pushing for it. Uh, doctors were saying, we want to be free to practice what we want without being attacked by our medical boards. Well, doesn't that sound familiar now? The Federation was literally, it's on paper, saying basically, we'll help you convince the legislature not to go this way because, medical counsel, you need to have full control and you don't want to give away that control. So this is, this is the way that goes. We'll, we'll help you to stop yeah. freedom of speech in effect. So in that meeting uh, I went to, uh, the delegate meeting, um, I saw how they make law from its private organization. And it's this way, it goes this way. There's this big great room with velvet ropes and all of these uh, voting booths are set up for each of the delegate with a little electronic voting button. And they talk about um, policy that has been written up by the Federation in the year since the last meeting. So this is not policy that these board members have ever really seen before, but it's policy that they're going to vote on. And so they put, the, they put this policy up on the screen, and I'm sitting there in the crowd going, now this is a private organization. These are government bodies. You can't make law this way. And you're a lawyer. You know that, right? Absolutely. But it's brilliant how they do it. So, of course, I guess whatever they just, you know, whatever comes up on the screen is okay with them. That's the Federation. That looks good. Boom. You know, and it's here to, you know, to make. And it, it all sounds very, very good. And, and, and then they take that, the Federation then takes that and, and puts the, the state medical board and each one is given to the states with their name on it. And then they turn it into law. You see, and that's why we were being attacked uniformly across the country, state by state. All, they were all they were all using the same kind of policy. What well, was being created in this delegate vote uh, at the Federation? It's an incredible model of control, of control from a small group out to a very large group and mm. thence around the world. So, so were you saying when you were setting the scene that you first have this wonderful whining dining, this wonderful dinner? Amazing, so there's, right? there's a real carrot and stick feeling that I'm oh, getting. Oh yeah, here. they had a they had a library set up there that you could take any books you want, no charge. Uh, they had uh, all these mugs and things like that, you know, and, you, and people, you know, taking bags and so, yeah, it was it was it was quite obvious to me uh, because I was there for spe specific purpose to find out who these guys were mm. and what they were doing and how they were doing it. I then um, testified in Washington, D.C. at the uh, President Clinton put um, designated what they called the President's Commission, White House Commission on Complementary Alternative Medicine. It was a two-year commission of 19 members that were investigating all the, you know, everything about complementary alternative medicine. And it actually turned out to be an amazingly great outcome, if you read it, about how the world could change with complementary alternative medicine. But 
it went nowhere actually, sadly. But anyway, I, I was brought in uh, to testify um, what I knew about the Federation. And that, I became, I guess, a target at that point in time because what I told them was we should not be allowing a private corporation to be influencing medical councils like this. Medical councils need to be independent and they need to be, they need to not be guided uh, in, in, this, in directions that, to my mind, were um, because of, you know, certain moneyed interest uh, that would benefit from, you know, this process. I'm trying to here play devil's advocate and say, what is the plus of this? Are they, could one argue that they are authentically, genuinely wanting to keep the standards of medicine high? And in the papers that I've read from this um, FSMB, that's how they word it. They say, we want to keep really good standards. I mean, I'm going to go here to one of their documents from the 90s. For the purposes of this report, they write, the terms alternative medicine therapy and or complementary medicine have not been utilized by the committee due to a lack of consensus among both practitioners and the public as to their meaning. This, this bit really worried me. The committee has chosen to use the term questionable healthcare practices to include those treatments, procedures, conventional or unconventional, which may be unsafe. So even in the title they give, Complementary Medicine, it's an absolutely loaded title. They bias it from the very beginning. They're biased from the beginning, right, right, right. which is what I see as someone who worked in mainstream media. I see mainstream media now as biased from the very beginning. If you have any alternative to the government standpoint, you are a far right or a conspiracy theorist. Mm -hmm. They have a label for you. Mm -hmm. So is that happening in our medical world? Oh, it's it's I mean, there's very few of us left. I think that, that you know, it's it's unbelievable to have the control that has been coming down uh, recently on on doctors. Uh, you would never, uh, if you imagine 50 years ago, me telling my dad that, you know, if I uh, wrote something, which, you know, I, I did and I, in an interview, I basically t was telling my patients and other patients that, you know, let's, let's relax a little bit about this, you know, this Omicron thing coming. Let's just let's cool down the fear and let's just try to take a look at the idea that, you know, if you do get it, uh, you'll get natural immunity. Well, you know, I mean, being that I'm, you know, trained in immunology, it's been shocking to me that nobody's talking about natural immunity, about your body's own, own ability to build a lasting protection against the virus. And so where, why, who's behind that? What, what, where is that coming from? Because, you know, I, uh, it's a shocking to me to see that the, the newest meeting of the delegate votes in April, uh, in New Orleans, they again did another policy statement over since uh, the um, time in 2021. In 2021, the Federation did a very interesting thing. They came out publicly with a statement, which we can put up on the screen, that basically said it was a battle cry, in my estimation, to the, to the medical boards. They basically said, that there's misinformation and disinformation being spread around, and particularly doctors who have a, you know, inordinate amount of influence and trust with the public are spreading this misinformation and disinformation. 
And we think that this may be uh, a disciplinary action by the medical council. That's what they, the medical boards. That was done throughout the world in, I believe it was May, April or May of last year. So. Then follow uh, that up with April. What was the, what no, happened? No, no, actually, let me, let me go a little mm -hmm. bit. I'll show you how, how it's structured. Mm -hmm. So they put out this notice, okay, this alarm. And again, harm, they, uh, every, everything has to have harm in it, HRM. Otherwise, because that, that's the mandate of the medical boards. Remember, you, they hear harm. Here we come to the rescue. We're not going to allow harm. So about two or three months after they put out that message, okay, they did a survey of the medical boards, councils. Only 26 out of the 70 that they have uh, responded. But nevertheless, they were able to ascertain that there had been a 56% increase in complaints about physician misinformation and disinformation, 56%. And therefore, we're going, to, we're going to move on formulating policy that we'll be voting on in April. Create a problem, solution. That's how they did it. And in April of this year, the Federation of State Medical Boards delegate meeting in New Orleans voted a 12-page uh, misinformation, dis disinformation policy, which effectively says you can gag, you can take away your physician who, who uh, the license of your physician if that physician is giving disinformation or misinformation. Well, now, that's, that's a wide open thing, isn't it? That's just a, that's the final bludgeon to gag, gag physicians. So it's no wonder, and, and now, because um, this medical council uh, in New Zealand, uh, and by the way, Joan Simeon is the CEO. Of the Medical Council of, the of New Zealand. Medical Council. And she's about to step into a job with the international arm, is she not? She has been, uh, she SMA. will become the, the chairwoman of the international arm of the Federation next year. I believe it's next year. So, I so, just want to stop there, Dr. Bruce, for people to take that in. A New Zealand woman is going to head this very opaque bodies, international arm, and we've had no articles about that. And she is the seminal influencer of our New Zealand Medical Council. She is the one who ruled that someone like Dr. Matt Shelton, who simply said to his patients in a newsletter, I'm not sure that this has been properly researched for pregnant women, and I'm going to advise my, my pregnant patients or my patients who are thinking of, of having babies just to hold off while more research is done. He lost his license for that. That was under Joan Simeon. So I actually had the same um, uh, thing happen to me. Um, a pregnant woman, mother came in and said, um, they, won't, I, they will not give me a, a medical exemption up at the, the only other medical center where I live. Uh, and so I said, well, geez, let me, let me go on. And I went on to MedSafe for the, uh, you know, the, and uh, the, uh, the MedSafe itself under pregnancy said, we don't know at that point in time, they said, we don't know, have enough information to say that this is safe, ask your GP. Well, I said, okay, I copied that, put it on the exemption, said, you've asked me if MedSafe can't tell me it's safe, 
I'm not going to tell you it's safe. I get a call um, a week later from the head uh, doctor at the hospital, and she goes, why did you, do, why did you give her a, a medical exemption? I said, did you read it? She said, I said, MedSafe can't say it's safe. I'm not going to say it's safe. How, how can you say it's safe? She says, well, the, GP, the Royal College of New Zealand GP says it's safe. I said, well, I don't care what they say. I don't know where they get their information, but I'm going to say, under my, under my watch, no. So anyway, uh, luckily, that didn't go anywhere. Um, but I, I'm, I'm sad, sad to hear that Dr. Shelton had that uh, happen to him because if it's not us that stands between, it stands in front of our patients in, in, in a protective manner, okay, or the baby coming, who will? And yeah. And we patients rely on that. We rely on you doctors to yeah. advocate for us to be safe, which puts you right in the middle of, of a dilemma when you're being pressured from above. And what is the Hippocratic Oath to us? Yeah, to well, patients? I mean, Liz, it's really heartbreaking to me because I love medicine. Uh, you know, uh, it's really heartbreaking to me to see this, um, th how fast this great uh, tr tradition is being crumbled because uh, of the lack of trust. You see, but, you know, I hear so many people saying, I just, you know, I just uh, don't trust the system. I mean, how could they do this? Blah, 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 you know? And the point I is, mean, to be more blunt, I have friends who say I'll never trust doctors again after yeah. their experience in hospitals, where they know the doctors are lying. The doctors are saying, you just have anxiety. And they're saying, I have a racing heart. I know the jab has injured me. And the doctors are going, no, it's just anxiety. Go home. I got, I got, that I is damaging. I have the, some the insight. I, I have some insight that they'll tell you. I, because I am a doctor, I have nurses who, you know, uh, relate to me things that they would never relate to anybody else, uh, kind of confidentially, if you will. And at the hospital uh, that uh, is the nearest to us over the hill, um, I had nurses who have told me in different times, so I know that they're not conspiring to tell me this thing, um, that in order for them to vent their um, fears to each other, uh, they go out into the car park on break and talk about it and leave their phones behind. This is how it's gotten. Doctors and nurses actually going out into the car park to talk about, my God, I can't, I've never seen so many myocarditis. I've never seen so many pericarditis. What, what's going on? Voltaire once said, man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. It applies to doctors. Doctors go into medical school free and idealistic, yeah. and then they become enchained. So these levers of power that I referred to earlier, the, the payment of medical insurance becomes one of the ways in which a doctor can be uh, directed in a certain, in a certain direction. Yeah. The, the license becomes another lever of power, mm -hmm. and the threat of losing losing one's livelihood becomes a threat, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and, and uh, a, certain, uh, a certain amount of, um, what you say, uh, pharmaceutical um, uh, uplifting, if you will. I'm in medical school, I, I think I told you this, the first week of medical school in, in, in Philadelphia. This was the story uh, I wanted you to tell because it tells me <laughs> of, about the, the very yeah. kind of doctor you were always going to be. Yeah, so, what happened? So, um, uh, the very first, you know, we, you know, it's like one out of every 72 got into medical school. So it was quite a, you know, you finally get there, you think, oh, wow, you know. And uh, 
the first week of medical school at Jefferson, they gave us this really nice leather black bag with a stethoscope and a reflex hammer, and it all had Eli Lilly's name on it. One of know, the big pharmaceuticals. Big pharmaceuticals back then. And uh, I thought, wow, that's pretty nice. Thank you, Lilly. And, uh, you know, I thought that was going to be the end of it. Oh, no. About uh, a week into school, we were across the street at the bar, Doc Watson's, mm -hmm. and three of us, I recall, and we were just talking, you know, as in the great. And I remember one of the guys said, you know, I, I can't wait, man. I'm going to be making a lot of money. And, we, and the, the other two of us like, hey, man, that's not what you came here for. You came here to help people. Don't give me that stuff about making money. Anyway, just about that time. I wish that was taught in medical school. Yeah, just about that time, this well-dressed young guy comes in, and he pats us on the back, and he says, hi, guys, you new freshmen here. And, he, and, and they go, yeah. And he goes, well, I'm uh, Joan So from Lilly. Did you like our bag and our, and our, and our stethoscopes and fleximers? And we go, wow, yeah, thank you very much. He goes, you know, guys, I like you. He says, down the road, they have that five-star Lebec Finn French restaurant way beyond anything we could even imagine, right? He says, I've got an expense account. You got, I'll take you guys to, you can have anything on the menu, any wine you want. We're like, wow. And I'm like, what? Those two went, and I never, I never took up another offer from a pharmaceutical because there, was, there were golfing trips and all kinds of things. And so this, this um, kind of dance uh, begins very early uh, with the... With the um, with them. It's, it's a grooming. A, it's a grooming. <laughs> it's, a grooming. <laughs> it's a dance of corruption. Yeah. It's a yeah. very ugly dance. And and although I do feel sorry for the fact that those doctors might lose their careers for now, any of these doctors who have gone along with it but who will speak up will become national heroes. Mm. So I would ask for any whistleblowers, if you have any conscience, please put down that medical qualification for a while at least until this is won. What is it that needs to be won back? What is it at the core of what you would like to achieve from this interview here today, Dr. Bruce? Well, first of all, I have a, I have a, I have a set purpose here, uh, one focused purpose, and that is we, we must not let this misinformation, disinformation uh, issue reach New Zealand. Already, Joan Seaman has put out a letter to all doctors saying, there are just a few doctors, they shouldn't call them fringe, who are creating misinformation and disinformation in New Zealand. And the Medical Council of New Zealand is going to take a look at um, misinformation and disinformation. Uh, ergo, we're, gonna, we're going to look at what was just passed with the Federation of State Medical Boards in April. And we'd like your input before we vote on it. If we stand by and we let the Medical Council of New Zealand incorporate this as one of their bylaws, et cetera, uh, into their, um, into their uh, policies and procedures, that that will be the final gag on anything that a doctor says uh, that would be counter to the mainstream narrative. And Liz, there's never been a debate in this country particularly about this COVID. There's never been a debate about the science. Never. It's always been, this is the, this is, and you know, this is the way it is. This is the truth. And it's like the truth ministry coming from the Ministry of Health. And meanwhile, the doctors 
um, around the world who are getting these signals that are counter to that truth are trying to say something. Most of them are, are getting slapped down, particularly if their medical councils are uh, members of the international arm. Uh, the ones, interestingly enough, that have uh, that are not on the international arm of the Federation, they um, they have incorporated um, uh, early treatment program, uh, early, early treatment uh, uh, medications such as ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. Japan is a country that's not is not controlled from Peru. Yeah. Um, uh, Uttar Pradesh. Uttar Pradesh is one of the most important studies of what, what we could have done in New Zealand, what an alternative was to this rollout of the, the COVID response that we had. Because what did they do? They put a little package together for yeah. every one of their citizens. Well, most importantly, I think, uh, really, the, um, the head of Uttar Pradesh is a holy man. Mm-hmm. He's a monk. Mm-hmm. And he is uh, he's completely un- incorruptible and has been known for, to be un- uncorru- un- incorruptible, uncorruptible for, you know, decades. And he just said, no, he says, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say no to this if, if, it, if it works. And they actually felt that it did. So they handed out uh, care packages like I did, actually. And these care packages were, I know, over there, they're about $2.70. Were they expensive for you? Very expensive for me because I, had, I, I used um, compounded inside of New Zealand. I didn't import, but... Um, Tell I, us what you did. Tell us what you did for your patients. Well, this prior, prior, prior to, prior to um, Omicron hitting, yeah. um, you know, again, I put out this information. I said, look, you know, it, this is not so bad. But for my patients, uh, we, um, I, I've prepared a uh, COVID, we, we call it the COVID ready kit. Mm. And it had ivermectin in it. It had vitamin D. It had melatonin. It had um, aspirin in it, you know, a little aspirin and instructions. And it was there in, 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 uh, uh, in the ready, if you will, they they call it here back pocket. But as a rural doc, r- rural doctor, I'm allowed to uh, prescribe uh, and 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 stock um, medications. And what were the results? Do you know any results from? Oh that? yeah, I mean, uh, we've never we had we had 250 people uh, uh, avail themselves of this package, and in, uh, and there was uh, not one single uh, hospital uh, uh, visit. That is extraordinary. Yeah. And in, and in fact, uh, one of the patients who uh, recovered in, uh, you know, not unusual today, in two days he was back on time. His wife happened to mention to a uh, local nurse uh, how fast recovery uh, he had. And the nurse said, well, how's that possible? And he said, well, Dr. Dooley, we had uh, purchased a, a thing of ivermectin from him. She goes, you gave him horse paste? That's what a nurse said. That shows you the power of the influence of the media, that they can actually, uh, they can actually create this in, illusion in people's mind that we're, we're dealing with the drug that's won the Nobel Prize. It's got three billion, billion people were given. It's one of the safest. It's safer than uh, paracetamol. I mean, there's just, uh, there's just no harm to be to be done using it, uh, what we call off-label or, you know, uh, repurposed. We are by law allowed, we are, and not only by law, but it's right there in the medical council saying on prescriptions, doctors are allowed to, as long as it's safe, uh, they're allowed to use drugs repurposed off-label. And yet this has been 
completely stopped. You and of course, and I'm being attacked now by the medical council for that. And there's no big profit margin in that, is there? There's, there's no, no. Yeah. You you spoke to me before we we came to do this interview. You used the most beautiful description of a doctor's real art. It is a marriage, isn't it, between? It's an absolute dance between science and the art. The art, uh, you know, we. We're, we're given, we're at the end of a fire hose of information in medical school, and we continue to uh, keep ourselves abreast of things uh, over the years. But at the same time, you need to be able to uh, have some empathy and respond and have a bedside manner and be able to, uh, you know, grok that there's something else behind this than just, you know, a blood test or this. That's not what a patient is. A patient's not just a... Um, uh, an objective thing. It's there's a lot of subjective to healing or helping a person heal, you know. And I want to quote here somebody who I know is one of your mentors and a doctor um, that I spoke to last night said when she was at medical school, this doctor, Dr. Mike Godfrey, who's now in his 80s, was one of her heroes. He is just somebody. And this is a book I would recommend to everybody to read. What's the matter? A doctor's journey into our innate spirituality. But this is what he wrote about the, the, as you say, the art of medicine. He says here, I hope the practice of medicine will move from the present commercialized and mechanistic business where patients are regarded as clients and there is a prescribed pill for every ill to a more humane, compassionate and empathetic attitude to suffering humanity. By doing this, it will also become not only more efficient but in my experience, also far more rewarding and indeed enjoyable. And that's for doctors as well as for patients. Mm. Yes, Mike is an amazing man. And New Zealand is so fortunate to have him. And unfortunately, he also was forced out of his registration uh, in, the, in the age of 70 because he just was a nonconformer uh, to the narrative. But Dr. Bruce, sitting here listening to you, I, I know when you say I love medicine, that you, you love the best of what, of what medicine has to offer, that yeah. you have the intelligence, the open-mindedness to look for other options. That is what I look for in my doctor first and foremost, is are you open-minded or are you propagandized? Are you, are you programmed? That is what I look for. What was it about Mike Godfrey that so inspired you? Yeah, I met Mike. He was the, um, he was the New Zealand representative at the, our board meetings in the ACAM back in the mid-90s. He was this incredible um, man who uh, had this great um, mana about him. And he was trained at one of the top English uh, London schools, medical schools. And he uh, just has um, uh, the most open mind to uh, possibilities, potentials. And he doesn't cl his, his mind is not blinkered. Unfortunately, medical school in many ways blinkers uh, people to this is the this is the only truth, and um, that sadly leaves a lot of uh, people, a lot of particularly physicians, to just completely dismiss anything that that wasn't taught in medical school, and to me that's a real shame. The point is is that if it works, it works, and if the patients keep coming back and it's safe, then why not use it? And why be why be told that you know you're gonna you're gonna lose we're gonna take away your means of making a living, doctor, mm. if you do? That and that's exactly why I asked that question. What is it about him that you admire? Because he must embody the sort of medicine you would love 
to see trained and practiced. Mm. How do we get from here with this covert, opaque body in America that is influencing right down through Joan Simeon, who heads our medical council, right through New Zealand now? How do we get to this open-mindedness again? How do we change what is going on? I mean, for me as a communicator, number one is be aware. Doctors that, that are on the board of the medical council, they don't have any idea about this federation. They don't have any idea. They uh, are there, they're serving, they're doing what they think is a great job. And now this misinformation, disinformation thing is gonna come through. But in the uh, luncheon before the April vote on the misinformation, disinformation, um, they had the president of the California Medical Board uh, quote unquote her letter that was excoriating. And I don't believe she actually wrote this. I think it was written by the Federation. It was read by somebody else at the meeting and it's available on YouTube. Uh, the point is, is that they literally used the word in referring to misinformation, disinformation, and these fringe doctors, they repeated, they used the word scourge. Now imagine, imagine calling doctors who are talking about ivermectin, basically, and other things, and uh, vitamin D. Uh, imagine that it's gotten to the point where they feel comfortable enough to put that out to the rest of the board members just prior to voting. But it was, it's, all, it's all orchestrated very well to, to, play, this, um, to play this part in uh, the, the Federation, that is. That is, you know, you're here to stop this scourge. You're here to stop this fringe misinformation, disinformation, because, you know, it could cause harm. This, this twisting of truth that has gone on, um, the word scourge was used by Hitler yes, about yeah. the Jews. Mm -hmm. So it is apt. It becomes more and more apt as we watch this um, kind of Orwellian language come out of things like in New Zealand, Te Punaha Matatini, which is the government's propaganda arm. We have a, a proper propaganda arm of government paid by the taxpayers here and in the future from the debt that we've got, well, paid to mislead the taxpayers. Is this... I'm not surprised. Could I... Could I put something to you, you may disagree with it, but to me the feel as I researched it was, could this FSMB be a sort of enforcement arm for big pharmaceutical? And that is why it adds up in that case that it's so covert, it's so hidden from the world's view. Is that, is that too great a reach? Am I overreaching myself there? Well, I happen to have thought the same thing back when I was investigating them, uh, and I actually they had uh, they had uh, handed out audio tapes of the conferences where they were saying, uh, you know, how to get your doctor and all these things. And I took it to in Miami. I took it to the world's top class action law firm. They have 400 attorneys, and I played these tapes. And I said, I can get a hundred doctors together who have been beaten up by their medical boards, uh, councils. I can get them together for a class action suit and we can sue the Federation and open their books under discovery and find out how are they surviving? This, this is going to cost, it costs them tens of thousands of millions of dollars a year, I imagine, with this kind of operation. And where's the money coming from? The other thing that they, that they own and they created uh, is the disciplinary data bank that I finally got put into with that second thing. And the disciplinary data bank is unexpungible. In other words, you're there for life. 
And uh, in my case, uh, I'm thrown in there for one word in a in a in a um, ad versus the same people that may have been, you know, raping their patients and, you know, all the other horrible things that get disciplined. More. So all of a sudden I've got a disciplinary mark. You have to really look closely to see that this is one ad in the paper, in a, a newspaper. But the point is, is that once you get a disciplinary mark in this bank owned by the Federation, it's almost impossible for you to get a license in any other state because in, in the application for licensure in another state, they go directly to the, the disciplinary data bank and you're pretty much blackballed. Somebody like Matt Shelton in New Zealand, yeah. would his name, as, as someone who was censured for simply trying to protect pregnant women and those wanting to become pregnant, would his name be linked to that database? Do we know? We don't know. Matt Shelton, and, I, and he's given me permission to say this, and he got his letter from the Medical Council of New Zealand they copied it to the Federation of State Medical Boards. Now why is the New Zealand Medical Council taking a suspension notice of Dr. Max Shelton and copying the Federation of State Medical Boards? Joan Simeon, I would really appreciate being able to give you a long-form interview before, particularly before you take up your post as the head of the international arm of this FSMB in America. What who will be her secretary in that, in that position when she takes it up? The secretary of the international arm, as well as being the secretary of the Federation's board, uh, is a, a Dr. Chandri, and he's, but he's also the president and CEO of the entire Federation. And I understand that Dr. Chandri, from a, only from a post, I can't confirm this, is, uh, has, has a salary of 700000 U.S. a year for that post. So he's, all, he's acting as secretary uh, closely on the international board and also the, 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 medical, the board for the United States. Interesting. Again, you talked about a lack of debate, but there would be many Kiwis deeply uneasy with such close ties to an Americanized health system. Uh, the Americanization of our health system in New Zealand. It's certainly not something I want. The cost in, in America is, is prohibitive for medical procedures. You told me a little anecdote um, about your stepdaughter and having, when you first came to New Zealand, you were so impressed with the New Zealand health system. I was. Can, I, you, and can it you, was, you tell us that story? It was so handled so quickly. She, she hurt her finger, went to the emergency room, seen quite right away, fracture, have to see the hand surgeon. Hand surgeon came in two hours later, which is not a long wait. Stayed overnight, beautiful place with registered nurses and, and a little playground. And next her morning- Her mother could stay with her, yeah, it was and very the, personal. And, and uh, her mom was able to stay with her. And uh, the next day, surgery was done. And, you know, of course, I'm watching this thing going, ooh, this is pretty good. From, and I never told him I was a doctor. Mm. I just wanted to watch. And uh, we get to the sign out desk, right? It's about two o'clock the next day, and the woman, the very nice woman, says, "I am so sorry, but there's a three dollar charge for a soda that wasn't that's not covered by the government." What did and you these, think as an American? And, and by the way, they had just arrived from Russia; they were on visas. They weren't even they, they they had only been there about a month, and they were they gotten this amazing treatment. And I'm like, I called everybody I could back home in, in the states. I said, "You won't believe how well socialized medicine works. It's changed." Tell us what that would be back in America. What would that have been? Had you oh, that would have been way over $100,000 in cost. 
And if you had insurance, uh, you, you know, the insurance would have paid some of it. it m most people don't have insurance now, it's too expensive. Uh, so yeah, it, it, would, it's a, it's a, it would have been a huge, and in fact, one of the number one causes of bankruptcy in the United States is not being able to pay your, these enormous bills that are coming out of just an emergency room visit could be $30,000. Putting aside my role as interviewer, as a Kiwi mum, as a Kiwi woman, mm -hmm. I have got this rising sense of anxiety that the head of our medical council is now going to be deeply embedded in the FSMB in America. That really worries me that I'm we are going to be directed. I'm not comfortable with it at all. I'm not comfortable with it because, um, because we, we need, I think New Zealand needs to lead the way here and say enough is enough. We, you know, we are going to let our doctors, uh, because we trust our doctors, say what they want to say. And a doctor should be able to say, in my opinion, X, Y, Z, and, and, and the patient say, and, and these are the reasons why, informed consent, uh, and then let the patient, see, I, I really believe my patients are smart, and they are, and they can make a decision on themselves. They really can. If you give them information, they can, they can choose which way they want to go. And God bless you. You know, if you want to choose that, that's fine. My recommendation is this, but, you know, go carry on. I don't, I don't hold any uh, con con uh, contempt for a patient that doesn't listen to what I say. I don't say, get out of here, you're, you're, you know, you're not listening to what I'm saying. But I hear that all the time from patients who say, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to do something like Dr. Dooley's saying, and, and the, patients, uh, the doctors are, will say, you know, no, I, you know, if you don't want to listen to what I'm saying, uh, that kind of attitude is wrong, 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 wrong. Patients just don't like it. Ultimately, I will stand by my, that the Federation of State Medical Boards and the international arm uh, bit, pretty much control medical councils. They control them, and they have for 100, well, they, they're 106, seven years old now, so that when they speak to the medical councils, the medical councils say, well, that's the federation, it must be true. And the they, they, they never look into it like I do, like, who is this federation? What, what, how have they been around for 100 some years, and I don't know anything about them as a, as a physician, really. The medical councils may know them, but I said at the beginning, many doctors may not know them. What's your experience when you've talked to fellow doctors? Every, there's never been a doctor that I know of, uh, but there's never been a doctor that I know of uh, that knows anything about the Federation of State Medical Boards at all. They just never even heard of it. So this shows you how this organization has been able to keep a cloak of um, secrecy about them, and this is exactly um, what I've seen, is that they operate in the shadows, uh, but they have an undue, inordinate amount of influence on medicine in the world. And they maintain their job is to protect the public from harm. Is there a way that could be turned around on them to say, in the suppressing of the voices of those doctors with the courage to stand up and say, like Damien Wojcik, who said, I cannot give true informed consent that that this jab is safe when the COVID-19 rollout happened. And I know Damien, and I know he's, he was just doing it. He's the purest heart I've ever seen, Damien. Yes, I've heard that about him. Mm -hmm. I don't know him, but I've heard that about amazing, him. Amazing, And thing. courageous. For that, he was punished. He was taken down. He's been gagged. Mm -hmm. So could we say, in suppressing the voices of doctors like that who've wanted to question, that they are intrinsically doing harm? 
that the SFMB is intrinsically doing harm, that the New Zealand Medical Council is doing harm, is running against its very mandate. Because if you don't have the ability to question, it's being left to the very few to decide. And what if they make a mistake? If we don't have open communication, we have nothing in a, in a society, do we? We don't. We, we, you have to, it's, it goes back to homeostasis, doesn't it? Mm. Balance. In anything, uh, if you only have one side, the, 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 it's a cis. But if you have, a, you know, if you have a, a, a scientific debate, which is always has to be, that science isn't just always, boof, this is it. They try to make it, particularly if money's involved, lots of money. But the point is, is that um, we are looking at a uh, situation of harm, which is really interesting because back in 1996, the Federation, realizing that the medicine that we were using couldn't cause physical harm, right? They actually voted on one of these delicate meetings, two new definitions of harm added on to physical harm. They added on harm, which was created with financial harm. If you had to pay out of your pocket to this doctor, that's a financially harmed. And the second, uh, the third would be the second one that they had, is if you chose to go to this complementary alternative medicine doctor and you didn't get better and, it's, and you didn't choose the conventional way, then you were harmed. Now that's interesting. They just say financial, and also if you chose this and you didn't get better, then we could also apply to your medical mandate, medical counsel's harm. So they added that intentionally, so now the medical board could act on harm because it's now got two new definitions, and it doesn't mean just physical. Now that, to me, is very dark, very dark. Very dangerous, very, as somebody with legal training, that's so nebulous, the definition mm -hmm. there. It's so able to be to be, uh, it's a malleable definition. It can be shaped according to what. Same with misinformation and disinformation. It's the same. Same. Who designates something disinformation exactly. or misinformation? Mm -hmm. It's a very dangerous, slippery slope we're on. For somebody who's worked in um, in media with people who I formerly thought were reasonably intelligent, Paula Penfold, who put a documentary out, I always thought she was reasonably bright. But I see her put out propaganda pieces on behalf of the government now. There's no doubt in my mind, Fire and Fury was a pure government propaganda piece. It would have done well in, in Goebbels and Hitler's Germany. Are you, are you surprised as I am that people, people with, with the intelligence and the training to do otherwise are going along with this? Well, um, there's, there's some really, really interesting brave, true journalists that have stepped up and said, I'm not going to do this anymore and, and in, in the United States and have pretty much said, we are being told what to say and if we, if we, if we don't do the narrative, we lose our job. And, and in journalism, as in medicine, if you're blackballed out, you're not gonna get a job anywhere else. It's not a matter of you just saying, well, okay, heck with you, I'm gonna go over here. Because over here, and over there, they're kind of the same, aren't they? Uh, so same with medicine. So it's really not it, the, the, the distinction between a journalist uh, having to say that and a doctor having to say that uh, is not too much different, is it? It's not too much different. Yeah. And and in the in the world to come, I do believe that in future generations, our grandchildren may ask us, 
Where were you in 2022? Mm. What did you do? Did you stand up or did you go along? Mm. I mean, there are other jobs. I certainly wouldn't be able to get a job in mainstream journalism again, mm -hmm. but I was willing to sacrifice that to mm -hmm. tell the truth. Mm -hmm. You are willing to sacrifice what you are sacrificing to stand up and speak out. Yes, and I, um, at, the, at this point in time, really, it's, it's, this is much bigger than me. This is, this is much bigger than me. When we have journalists and we have doctors who really love their profession, you know, and journalists, true journalists go into journalism because they want to, they want to actually reveal something that might be opposing. Uh, they might want to present something that might counter what the government is telling you. But when the government has gotten so powerful uh, and the regulatory agencies have been captured, and captured is really an interesting word. I think we're talking about the medical councils of the world have been captured by the Federation. And so have a lot of other agencies. That is a profound thought. And explain that more deeply by alluding to your friend who went to a course in which he was being uh, framed. Could you tell yeah, that Yeah, I have story? a very brilliant guy who's an attorney uh, neighbor, and he uh, was also went to Oxford for his MBA in business. And he tells a story, which is really, I mean, he said, um, uh, he went to this course and uh, they were teaching him it's, they, the title of the course in this lecture hall in Oxford was called Non-Market Strategy. Sounds, well, I don't know, non-market strategy. What they were teaching these, these MBAs that were soon going to be out and heading companies and things like that, what they were teaching him, what he realized quick, quickly was they were teaching him them how to capture their country's regulatory agency that might, whatever might be, oil or gas or whatever it is, how to get around or regulatory medicine. or medicine. Mm. Um, and he, uh, to his credit, uh, I understand, and he tells me, he stood up in the lecture hall. He said, wait a minute, what are you doing? These regulatory agencies are meant there to protect the public. That's what they're there for. Why, what are you telling us how to get around them? That's not, that's not right. Interesting. So that's kind of an insider look uh, at, and Oxford, of course, holds uh, you know, quite a place in world history uh, for putting leaders out into the world. And when I alluded before to, are you surprised that, um, that people who are educated are willing to go along with this? For me, that's the key, that they, they too have children. The police who enforce and illicit governments overreach, they have children, they mm -hmm. will have grandchildren, mm -hmm. they have wives and families and mothers at home. Yeah. Those families will be hurt if they indulge illicit behavior. Always follow the money and see mm. if that leads to something that raises doubts. This raises a lot of doubts for me, the SFMB, because of its secrecy, mm. because of its inordinate power, because it's a private organization that's not discussed or voted on. But let's look at the conclusion to a 1990s report from them, Section 8, conclusion. just want to quote this. It's been estimated, they write, this is from a FSMB report. It's been estimated that up to $100 billion is lost to healthcare fraud in the United States annually. Medical interventions that do not conform to prevailing scientific standards are becoming increasingly popular. It's estimated that in 1990, Americans made 425 million visits to providers of unconventional medicine 
exceeding the number of visits to all U.S. primary care physicians at a cost of approximately $13.7 billion. By the way, this, um, this policy paper that was voted in uh, was on their website for several years until I made that um, testimony at the Washington Cam White House Commission. And then uh, it soon thereafter was taken off. And I unfortunately lost my only heart, because I, what I did is I, I, I handed out about 100 hard copies to all my doctors back then, said, watch out, look what they're doing. This is how they're doing it. I lost my hard copy, but I went to something called the Wayback Machine. Do you ever hear the Wayback Machine? No. The Wayback Machine is so cool. You go back to, uh, it takes you, I, I went back to 2002 on the Wayback Machine. You Google it. You Google. No, it's, it's, a, it's a site, Wayback. Okay. So what it does, it takes snapshots of all, all, of all websites. And you can, even if they go out of, you can go back. And if oh, they're changed, you can go back. Very cool. So I went back to when I knew that this was available. And I thought, oh, I don't know if I can even do this. But sure enough, boom. There it was, it is available. So I, I, that's, that, you cannot find that right now unless you go to the Wayback Machine, but that's still a core policy. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's not that they, they just took it away from eyes to be able to see. But mm -hmm. what leapt out at me is this is about money. Yeah. We are missing out on making all the money that we could make if we could corral the world's population into one way, mm -hmm. the pharmaceutical way mm -hmm. of medicine. Is well, I mean, what, what you just read is, is an anti-competitive statement, isn't it? It's basically saying, hey, you know, this money is going elsewhere uh, and people are really loving it and it's growing and we have to stop it. Now, why wouldn't something like that be able to, why would you be able to go after the Federation for making a statement like that and, and say, this is anti-competitive, open up your books, show us who you really are? It's absolutely anti-competitive. Sure. It means me, as a, as a patient, yep. I can't say, oh, I rather like chelation therapy. I love IVC. I get great results. They know it will grow because they know that it's effective. Things will only grow. I will recommend it to somebody else if it works. Well, you know that whole paper, by if the it way. Was, if it was unsafe, as they're writing, and improper and incompetent and, and fraudulent, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it, and neither would any of my friends. Yeah, but that whole paper, by the way, I mean, it's a, it's a blueprint for how to get your doctor that does this, and it talks about all the federal agencies. They list them right there. The Federal Trade Commission, which they use for ACAM, the IRS, the Postal Service. I mean, it's unbelievable uh, that they are outwardly saying, hey, you know, you can use these and these and these to be able to get your uh, doctor in your state that is not towing the line and, and doing these uh, other alternative therapies. And uh, wow, I mean, think about that. And they were, of course, 1913, the, Feder the Federation of State Medical Boards was way before any of the other alphabet agencies, way before CDC, way before the FTC, way before the FDA. They were there ready for these agencies to come on board. So do they have influence also? in these agencies? I think so. Well, we know that, that their tentacles reach in, in terms of getting them to send speakers over to speak to the groups, don't we? Mm -hmm. The FSMB has people from the IRS or, or other agencies come and speak to them, don't they? Well, they had the, F, the Federal Trade uh, mm. Commission uh, president the year before we were attacked by the Federal Trade Commission. Again, mm. something of such inordinate influence and it's barely known by the population. So where to from here? What, what is, 
actually, let's, let's now jump back to history. If we look at the Chicago World Trade Fair, you mentioned that when we were in the warm-up for this. Mm-hmm. And it was so inspiring. It was in the 1800s. Yep. What happened there and what is it about that that inspires you and could we ever get to that kind of world again? Um, Oh, this is, you know, basically what I was impressed in, if anybody wants to go and and, and actually uh, research it, it was the most, I think it was 1865 in Chicago or something like that. And they had the most amazing um, exhibits and the most amazing inventions and the most amazing engineers stuff, you know, and... uh, it was all about uh, new types of engines that would work, uh, uh, you know, with certain electromagnetic things and Tesla, you know, that kind of technology. It was really amazing, actually, that uh, they were, there was like a, a renaissance, a renaissance. Uh, and, um, and that seemed to just got, you know, in my estimation. But that doesn't really have much to do with what we're talking about, except that maybe to it does. To me, it, it, it has everything to do with what could could replace this dark, covert body lurking in the background, controlling way too much, to that flowering of human freedom, that flowering of human creativity, that questioning, that what else could we do? Mm -hmm. What could we create Mm -hmm. in this space? How do we, I asked you before, how do we do that bridge, Dr. Bruce, from here, which is a kind of dark place. It's threatening. There's persecution to this freedom and this flowering of human creativity. We need to uh, disentangle our healthcare and healthcare regulatory bodies totally from the, these influences. We need to disentangle them. We need to, I mean, for instance, uh, I made a, a, a OIC, uh, Information Act, to MedSafe to find out what this committee, MAAC, this, that, that, uh, that Authorize the uh, the uh, the inoculation, the mm-hmm. Pfizer inoculation, uh, and they refused to give the names of these people. They're, so I went to the ombudsman, and the ombudsman also had to agree that we can't give you the names of these people behind the curtain that are making telling the MedSafe to uh, uh, approve uh, this thing. So as of today, we don't know. And then they then they went and proved it for the lower age group, and finally to the last age group. So we don't know to this day who these people are. Let alone their qualifications. Or who, they're, who, they're, who they may have worked for. Who they, we don't know. That is frightening. And I went, to, I went to full Monty. I couldn't go any further. I went to the, I went to the ombudsman. That is, that is absolutely frightening, the lack of answerability. For many Kiwis, there's a huge question mark over why this government has not told us anything about the New Zealand contract with Pfizer. The contract. What is in that contract? What did this government, on our behalf as our servants, sign up to with Pfizer? What commitments were made mm-hmm. on behalf of the people? Isn't that the lack of transparency from a prime minister who said, I'll be the most transparent prime minister ever. Mm-hmm. There is a karma to all of this. There is, a, there, is, uh, there is an end to this for every person who makes that choice to go to the road less traveled, to be honorable, to be brave, which you have done to speak out even against perhaps one, one's own interests. Yep. And those who will go along, who will lie, who will dissemble, who will take money, who will choose corruption. There is something in this book or that the I... Or the majority who will just not want to rock the boat because mm. it's too painful. It's painful. And, On that note, actually, what was it like coming to this interview? What, what journey have you done to choose to speak out? 
Uh, I basically said, you know, really at this point in time, uh, it's uh, my lovely wife said, is, is, is your will up to date? <laughs> and um, and you start this conversation because really we're talking about, I believe, we're talking about interfering with uh, powers that um, that have enormous power and are gaining more and more power across across the world. Uh, and I think little New Zealand has a history of standing up to these powers in the past with the French and with the American uh, Navy, uh, the uh, military. With, with the nuclear ships. Nuclear ships. And, and with South Africa. South Africa and apartheid. I mean, Kiwis have this, you know, this uh, stuff in them that I, I was very proud of when I first got here. And I would like that to see that stuff come back up again and mm -hmm. say, you know, this is not right. Our doctors should not be losing their livelihood and their, and their medical registrations for basically trying to help a pregnant woman. We need to have the medical council disengage themselves from this international arm, number one, in my estimation. We need the, we need the Ministry of Health to allow open debate. They don't allow open debate. And that, why is that? I mean, we need to have open debate. We need to, this country needs to look at the rest of the world. Nobody's wearing masks anymore in the rest of the world, pretty much. And why are we still doing that? To me, we need a total fresh broom to sweep out what's on the Medical Council of New Zealand as an outsider looking in with absolutely new people appointed who are of the highest, most unquestionable integrity. I certainly as a Kiwi don't want somebody who's deeply embedded in the FSMB also heading the New Zealand Medical Council. So again to Joan Simeon, if you would give me an interview, I'm happy to be proven wrong, but I have many questions for you. The courage it must have taken, you've mentioned your wife, did she at first say, no, don't do this, Bruce? No, no. She's a, she's a real uh, strong woman and she knows uh, exactly what's happening. She's totally on board mm -hmm. and has watched me over the years, um, you know, in Florida too, mm -hmm. um, with this, uh, if you will, this movement to, um, to basically take over medicine. Um, medicine should be left in the hands of the doctors, in my estimation. The government should stay out of it. The regulatory bodies should only be there for real harm and real, you know, they shouldn't be doing what they're doing, which is they're, um, they're acting as bludgeons for um, what, I believe is the, what I believe is the pharmaceutical industry, actually. A note as a Kiwi woman of the deepest gratitude that a man of your quality has come to our shores and cares so much about this country that you would stand for this level of truth. Well, I've got a 12-year-old daughter. Yeah. It's for her. Your karma, Dr. Bruce, will be a very rich one indeed. Thank you. Thank you for doing what you're doing for this country and for the world. Thank you.